welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, a podcast for examining the non-Star Wars work of Star Wars creators. I'm John. I'm Mike. And we are here to guide you through this week's episode where we will be taking a look at the first films of the first three directors of Star Wars movies, of any Star Wars movies that ever came into existence. George Lucas, Irvin Kershner, and Richard Marquand. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. And that brings us to the work of George Lucas, uh, first Star Wars director, uh, making the original film, of course, in 1977, and his first film, THX 1138, based on his student film, THX 1138 4EB Electronic Labyrinth. And uh, Mike, do you want to give the audience an idea of what THX 1138 is i can try um <laughs> it's a uh sort of orwellian future in which people are treated like numbers and interchangeable parts and uh they're all working to serve the man and <laughs> they're all you know heavily medicated and heavily programmed to do uh, the the man's bidding, and one of them, or two of them, I guess, decide that uh, maybe this isn't uh, the way the way it should be, and they try to become individuals and try to uh, break away from the conformity of society. And hijinks ensue. Yeah, hijinks do ensue. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. It's definitely a first film. And it is a film where, once again, Lucas has erased the past, and you can only find the George Lucas director's cut now, which has latter-day CG effects inserted into it. You know, I don't think that's true. I think you really? can get the original theatrical on iTunes. I'm not 100% positive, but they've got the George Lucas director's cut, but then there's a second section where it's just it's not labeled the director's cut, and it's not in HD, but I think it might be... The theatrical cut. I would be fascinated to revisit the theatrical cut because that is the one that many, many years ago, being the uh, Star Wars fanboy that I am, I rented. <laughs> it had layers of dust on it. And my friend and I rented it and we said, this is George Lucas's first movie. We got to see this. We fell asleep uh, and had to return the video. And then we tried again and we fell asleep. And we returned the video, and on the third time, on the third time I made it through. Have you I, ever seen the original cut? Yeah, I think that we have all had that same exact experience that you had. <laughs> um, yeah. I, my, my, my similar experience uh, occurred with my friend Zach, who's uh, also a huge Star Wars fan, and I think he had already seen the movie. And, you know, of course, you know, I wanted to check it out because it's George Lucas, and yeah, I, I pretty much fell asleep and had kind of, you know, sworn that off until the director's cut was released uh, in 2004. And it was released in theaters. Like, I, I remember going to see it at, at uh, River East 
And at that point, it's like, oh, well, George Lucas is making a director's cut and they're releasing it in theaters. How are you not going to see that? You know, even if, you know, I did dislike the movie greatly eight years earlier. So, of course, I went to see the director's cut. And and this time watching it as an adult, I appreciated it a lot more. It is definitely a function of age. It's a very dry film. It's not terribly accessible but at the same time it's if you can plug into the the more abstract style that it is in and the fact that it it really is Lucas working on you know all of the things that he would he would come to be known for the quick cuts the the camera setups those sorts of things and at the same time I've got to ask did you think that the George Lucas director's cut was any sort of improvement on the film? I don't think I'm really qualified to answer that because my memory of the theatrical cut was such that I I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there where I'm like, this must have been, you know, new. But, I mean, obviously because it's CGI, but there's a lot of like, like non CGI things where I'm like, this, this must not have been in the original. Right. And, and I, I have absolutely no idea what the changes are, you know, on a, you know, shot by shot, scene by scene basis. But I, I do think that, uh, it is improved in some ways based on, um, just seeing sort of like what was added. Uh, you know, it, it feels like these things, some of these things sort of, uh, helped in terms of clarity, but yes. I mean it. It suffered, I think, from the same problem that a lot of people have with the Star Wars special editions, where aesthetically speaking, it's like a car crash. You know, it's like remember when that guy gets in that car and then he starts driving in and immediately <laughs> crashes into that pole. That's what it feels like when the the two aesthetics of the micro-budget 1974 sci-fi movie and the, you know, super-duper ILM-produced special edition CGI effects clash. You know, it's it's just like that car and, and that and that pole. See, but, I, 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 don't, I don't quite plug into that. I do agree with you that the this, this CG stuff is very like it does not blend particularly well. There are a couple of sh- there are a couple of shots where it is successful to as successful as it could be. Mm-hmm. Let, let's put it that way. It's as successful as it could be. But there's other stuff during specifically if you're going to talk about, you know, the cars during the chase, there are certain things that were were put in, you know, like added scaffolding and workers and when he's climbing out through the shell the creatures that attacked him originally were just little people in white suits Mm -hmm. and they get replaced with these CG monkeys because you know, he, he, that's what he wanted back then, but couldn't have. And those I think are really the ones where it's, it's most jarring because it's, you know, there is in his own words, you know, no movie is ever completed. It's abandoned. And sometimes it's okay to abandon it. But I will say that the trade-off is that the there are certain points in the original version where he definitely does address some narrative problems, uh, visual narrative problems with what's happening, uh, you know, on screen. One of the things that I wish he had not addressed was in the beginning 
when THX is watching the hollow TV. Oh, yeah. And the machine comes down while he's watching the naked woman dance. The visual language was clear enough for me the first time. I didn't need to see the machine come down to participate. It was I sort of like, yeah. I, I have to say I appreciate that because, I mean, it really does. I mean, that's something where it, it adds to, you know, the, the, the content, I think, where it's it's really sort of like hitting home the point that he's trying to make, which is like even this bodily function is being you know, sort of like controlled by the state. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. true. I mean, I, that, that to me, I think is a perfectly valid addition and it doesn't take me out of the movie or anything like that. You know, it doesn't take me out of the movie, but it, it is something, I don't know. I, I was just sort of like, yeah, I, I, I got the point the first time around guys. I don't have, to, you know, like, eh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just, that's just me. What can I say? They did tweak the hologram effects too. Yeah. Uh, in that part. Uh, for certain, and uh, but the hologram aesthetic you see crop back up in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, which so. you know they 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 maintain throughout all the different incarnations of Star Wars, which I think is really cool. I mean, yeah. the the problem that I have with the the special edition editions in in this particular case is that this movie in particular was definitely tailor made to its budget and its limitations. And yeah. to sort of uh, abandon those because now you don't have the limitations, you know, and it's 30 years later or whatever, I think is a problem, you know, and, and it really does take you out of the movie. And it really sort of bums me out because they do such a good job of making this epic science fiction movie for no money. You know, I mean, you see this a lot with the filmmakers I mean, you don't see this a lot, I guess, I, I, but there are n- numerous examples of this. And every time that I see it, where I see like a first time filmmaker who's like, I have no money, I want to make a science fiction movie, and they make something with the materials at their disposal, it usually ends up being really, really great because they really have to, uh, you know, use their creativity in order to accomplish it. And I think that's the biggest achievement of THX 1138. And uh, it's, I think, really kind of what puts Lucas on the map. And the other thing which I I just kind of, you know, uh, think about whenever I watch this Mm -hmm. movie is how it's really basically an experimental film and how you, you hear Lucas talk about how, you know, now he wants to just make art house films that no one will ever see and whatever, you know, this is what he's talking about. And you see him doing it here and you see how not Hollywood this is, how how yeah. outside of the box and how experimental and how not uh, um, in, in, the, in the typical narrative tradition this movie is. And you're like, wow, he did a really good job at that. Then he became like the absolute master of the Hollywood style narrative filmmaking, now, whatever. Well, Hollywood sought to imitate him. He well, became, I mean, like, he became the new template. It's not that he he didn't change himself so much as Hollywood changed to match him. I mean, uh, to me, I think maybe he was, you know, doing sort of like a, a slightly 
a, a slight variation of of that template, you know, and, and he ended up creating the new norm or whatever. But regardless of that, you know, whether you look at Indiana Jones or Star Wars or anything, even like Red Tails, you know, it's, you know, that perfect narrative. And, and he, he does that better than anyone, right? But yeah. he does this really well, too. And I really, really wish that he would go back and do something not like THX-1138, but something like it in the sense that it's not like anything else you've seen. You know, uh, what's interesting, I think, about THX is one of the things that Lucas said uh, that served as an impetus for Star for Star Wars being born was that at the end of THX, he had an ending and it was done basically and he said he always regretted that he boxed himself in he could never go back to the world of THX because it was there was nothing else to tell uh which i you know i guess i agree with in a sense because well i mean because he's saying his character made it to the end there I mean, and there that's was nowhere like to saying, go with that like that to me i would believe that he has <laughs> changed his mind over time as to what the limitations of that ending might have been Perhaps. but the way the way he felt was that he was done. Okay, I mean, that's fine. But for, for him to regret that, it's like, I regret that I had a perfect ending, you know? Which is something which is, generally speaking, uh, a, a positive quality in a movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wish that I could make more of these things, but I can't because I said everything that there is to say about it here. I mean, it's like, no, no! <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Well, you know, I, I actually think, though, that... Uh, there is a lot because, of course, you know, we're, we're looking at the works of Star, Star Wars creators outside of Star Wars to see, you know, what they tell us about how they made things. There are definitely things carried forward from THX into Star Wars that never got acknowledged as such. And one of my favorite things is that THX opens up with, uh, you know, basically like a Flash Gordon, like it, it opens with an old serial thing to give you an idea of the type of world a dystopic version he's creating. You know, he he has the tribute at the beginning of THX with a film clip of the movies he grew up watching that influenced this. And then when you jump forward to Star Wars, 20th Century Fox wasn't using uh, you know, the fanfare anymore. He specifically carries over the fanfare. It it wasn't recorded by Williams for the 1977 release. They literally lifted it and put it in front of the film in a similar sort of callback. So that whole idea of callback, even though THX is its own thing, it still has that built into it. I think that's so interesting to see that come forward, uh, you know, it, it, when Star Wars comes around. Yeah, and that, that, that clip at the beginning, I think, is kind of like a really interesting sort of like clash and commentary on movies and Hollywood and everything like that. Because the way that it's designed, it actually comes before the the Warner Brothers logo. So in a way, it's kind of mimicking the, the experience. It's like the original Grindhouse, where it's like you're seeing <laughs> yeah. the short before the movie just like you know you used to and it's like all right and now we're going to watch some typical hollywood fare and then you see this thing which is unlike anything you've ever seen before you see this you know art film and i think that that's really sort of like cool and subversive and it it, it works really well yeah. yeah and speaking of clips one of my favorite things to cite is that uh 
uh, one of my favorite albums um, through my younger years was Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, yeah. And that actually opens with a THX 1138 clip, the one of the cop beating the guy oh. that he's watching. That that goes and it starts and then it speeds up and it goes into Mr. Self-Destruct, the first clip. So oh. Trent Reznor had a THX callback in a 1994 album and nobody saw it. Nobody knew. It just I, snuck in there. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about from that album, and yeah. I had no idea. The first time wow. I put it together was I was already a Nails fan by the time I watched THX, and that scene came up, and I went, you got no. You got to be kidding me. Like, I heard it. I immediately heard it, and I, I went back, and I compared the clips, and I like, did some research. I was like, Wow. Like, that was a mind-blowing moment because it was literally, for me, like chocolate and peanut butter being put together. I got George Lucas. I got Trent Reznor. Something came together that intersected. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. It was, it was a wonderful moment in my, my youth, Mike. Hmm. One thing that I just want to note before we move on is that this movie was uh, co-written and sound designed by Walter Murch, who was, you know, Lucas's friend from back in the day. They worked together on uh, Gimme Shelter, by the way. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and Walter Murch, uh, you know, he did the sound for uh, the next movie, American Graffiti, which was fantastic. And then he became an editor, uh, edited uh, a million movies, including The Conversation and, you know, uh, Apocalypse Now and The English Patient and all these things. Walter Murch would later go on to write uh, what is considered to be sort of like the textbook for film editing um, that, uh, you know, they use in film school, you know, to this day, it's called a blink of an eye, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also, um, there's this amazing book, which was written by the guy who wrote the novel, the English patient called the conversations, Walter Murch and the art of editing, which uh, is just uh, the guy, Michael on Is that his name? The guy who wrote the English patient, that guy and Walter Murch just talking about Murch's I, career. I think I have something to put on my Amazon wish list. I, but, I am yeah. I am not exaggerating when I say it is the absolute best book on film theory that I've ever read. And wow. I think that as great of an editor and as great of a sound designer, and hey, also Walter Murch, Star Wars guy, he directed an episode of The Clone Wars, um, as great as Walter Murch is at all of those things, I think he is the best at film theory, and I think that he is one of, if not the best film theorist in the world. So would it be fair to say that Lucas's collaboration with him here has an influence going forward? I think yeah. so. I think it has an influence going forward, you know, on the world. Yeah, I mean, these guys... I mean, I think, you know, the two of them were trying to figure stuff out together, but, you know, I think you see a lot of, you know, I mean, the sound design here is very rich. It's kind of like, you know, almost like a wall of sound sort of thing. And oh, yeah. they definitely take that into American Graffiti. And uh, Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And actually, um, you know, it, you know, if you're talking about the sound design, one of the one of the limitations uh, was the size of the cast. And that that's one of the things that they they tweaked in the uh the special edition was when they emerge from their you know abstract prison into the big flow of people the way that they conveyed they turned 10 men into 100 was with that wall of sound theory like to 
convey the disorientation that THX went through, even though they had, you know, 20 extras walking by. Yeah. But like, yeah. you know, they, you still got the point uh, of what was going on uh, yeah. at the time. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and uh, it's tough. I mean, just before we move on, would you recommend THX as a film to watch for so like would you would you say to somebody yeah you know what if you have the time go ahead and sit down with it or do you think that it is something where it's more beneficial to watch a behind the scenes sort of thing and just learn about its influence and shaping no i think it's a very good movie you know i i think that it might be a little rough around the edges and it might have some pacing issues but i think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in it both from a filmmaking standpoint and also from you know a george lucas you know standpoint but also just from a uh a thematic standpoint you know mm-hmm. i mean the the commentary which lucas is making here is deep and he goes to some dark places and really sort of uh puts a microscope on society and consumerism and all that stuff and it it's not not a pretty picture right you know and and it's 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 great yeah i think it's a really good movie i think it's worth watching even if you wind up not because i did see a screening of it uh just a few months ago and um the audience was decidedly split on its reaction to it hmm. um but i think that it's worth watching simply even if you don't like it it's worth watching because a lot of the the thematic beats that are in this come back in the Phantom Menace very much in terms of the world building. He very much lifts elements from this and puts it into the star Wars universe and says, okay, I can reuse this now. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, and those, those carry through, but that's THX. That brings us to the second director of the original trilogy, Irvin Kirshner, legendary director, Irvin Kirshner, um, with Empire Strikes Back became arguably everybody's favorite Star Wars director. And uh, his first film was uh, Stakeout on Dope Street, a 1958 Warner production. Uh, so, Mike, what you want to tell everybody what uh, Stakeout on Dope Street is about? Yeah, uh, basically, you know, on the, the, the rough streets of... I don't even know what city it's supposed to be. Is it L.A. or San Francisco? I forget. Somewhere. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, people selling dope, and uh, they're poisoning the youth of America, and there's some people who are trying to, to make a deal for, you know, like two pounds of uncut heroin, and basically the deal goes bad, and the drug dealers who are involved in this end up, you know, getting killed or end up killing some cops or and the the dope is out in the open and these these uh this group of friends who you know generally speaking are are some good guys but you know they're they're struggling just like everyone else they are the ones who come across the dope and now the question is what are they going to do with it are they going to sell it and and get rich are they going to turn it into the police and uh, it kind of just goes from there, and we see what happens based on the choices that they make. Yeah. It's fair to say that this was Warner maybe doing uh, sort of a PSA uh, at the time about he, drug culture. Yeah, I think that it is safe to say. I, apparently, Roger Corman was an uncredited producer on this, and uh, 
you know, it was definitely, you know, in the, I mean, I'm not going to say to this extreme, but sort of like the reefer madness style of, you know, like, you know, don't do drugs, kids. And also, you know, like, if you, you know, this, this goes, this problem goes way beyond just doing drugs. It, you know, it, it, it affects everyone, you know, people die because of this stuff. People die because they're trying to sell this stuff. It's kind of like, you know, traffic, you know, 50 years before it's time. Yeah, it's yes, of course. <laughs> it's, it's like traffic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Soderbergh. All right. Already. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I think worth uh, pointing out is that the director of photography, although uh, credited at the name credited is Mark Jeffrey, it's actually Haskell Wexler, who is yeah. something of a legendary cinematographer, um, which is pretty amazing. And um, it's it's his first movie, if I'm not mistaken, that he photographed. Oh, I didn't know this, this was his first. Wow. That's... And, uh, that's amazing. And he, he would go on talent. to photo, photograph uh, American Graffiti for Lucas and uh, a billion other things. And yeah. I, like with American Graffiti, I think he's like credited as like visual consultant or something like that. It, but yeah. he's he's actually it was like a weird thing where they like hired someone, but the, then they got fired. But the credits. But he he's basically the guy who shot American Graffiti. Um, but. He, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. And by the way, you know, there's a documentary about him called uh, Tell Them Who You Are, which mm-hmm. was directed by his son. And basically his son was, you know, a filmmaker of his own, right, you know, a documentarian or trying to become one. And, you know, Haskell Wexler, not the easiest person to get along with, you know. Mm. And this is, this movie is basically, what it's about is uh, this this kid trying desperately to get his father's approval, you know, w- whether yeah. it's professionally or in, you know, as a son or whatever, because like the two were vastly different in terms of their personalities and everything. And it's a really, really beautiful movie about, you know, a father and a son. And it really gives you a lot of insight into who Haskell Wexler was as a person and wow. why his work is so significant, even if he was a really big jerk. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, some, some great artists have been, have had uh, personality issues. It, yep. The artistic temperament is not one always that is uh, easy to get along with for sure. For sure. But yeah. uh, Kirshner at play in this film as director and co-writer of the screenplay and story, um, I was pretty amazed because I was ready to sit down. I've seen these types of movies before. You've seen these types of Everybody in the audience, you have seen this type of movie or clips from it where everybody has a good laugh at the way they portrayed, you know, drugs back in the 50s and, you know, we're trying to scare kids and stuff like that. But this, this is actually pretty well put together. I was like, oh, so this is what it looks like when talent's behind the camera. No kidding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's really good. It, it was like one of those things where, like, I don't know, like, I, I became obsessed with Irvin Kirshner, like, in, in college. I, I tried to seek out all of his movies, and this is one which had never been released. Like, you couldn't get it anywhere. And, oh, wow. like, I had I had a, a, a teacher in film school who I, I really sort of bonded with, I think because, 
he's like, what's your favorite movie? You know, and I'm like, Empire Strikes Back. And he's like, oh, yeah, I like that one. That one was directed by Irvin Kershner. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, high five. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, he made this amazing movie called Stakeout on Dope Street. I'm like, yeah, I've I've been trying. And then he like he had seen it as like a kid, like on WGN here in Chicago or whatever. And he was like telling me about this movie. And I had sort of like envisioned it in my head. And then one day it popped up on Netflix. And, you know, I finally got to see it. And it kind of blew me away, you know. Um, yeah. it, it's available now. You can rent it on Google Play, or you can also, they just released it in widescreen on the uh, the Warner Archive, uh, so you can get it from there. Um, I, I highly recommend it. You know, I, I think it's, it's yeah. a really solid, really I, solid I, sort of crime. I completely movie. agree. And the thing is, you can actually see composition and camera movement that you can see in Empire Strikes Back. Like, I, obviously, this is a first film, and so it's very... You know, he hasn't found everything about his style yet, but there are certain uh, scenes that he composed first and foremost, like the the first thing was I'm I'm used to seeing these old 50s movies like this one was actually using depth of field and like had this, you know, wonderful dynamic setup where like somebody would be in the background reacting to what the two people in the middle ground were talking about. And it it was amazing and then uh even the the way that the scene plays where the dope addict is talking about what it's like to be an addict and it's basically you know the the cautionary tale to the kid about how many times he's had to kick it and he's in the prison and you see him going through withdrawal and all of those sorts of things i mean it's pretty it's pretty amazing and there was even some interplay with the way he staged the girl friend and um the reticent male lead who didn't really you know the artist who didn't really want to get into things but went along with his friends there are scenes that they have where i was like yeah okay well you know like the way that they're facing each other and like everything it's like it's han and leia in the hallway you can sort of see that echo in that moment it's really cool yeah you know i mean of of these three movies these three first films Kirshner is the one who had the most prolific career in between his first movie and his his star wars movie you know he's the one who had uh he was working for you know a couple decades you know where, whereas like lucas had made one movie in between and um mm-hmm. you know mark wand who we're going to get to in a minute had made like one or two so it, you know definitely his style evolved over time as technology and evolved over time and everything like that but you know like you're saying there are still you know the seeds of that later on and you know more than anything i mean you you see his immense talent and and one of the things about kirshner and one of the reasons why i think he's one of the the greatest filmmakers of all time is because he lets the material dictate his style Mm-hmm. in a sense he he doesn't have you know like these like very very specific trademarks like you can see even in in lucas's movies uh he is very sort of uh malleable when it comes to you know how to tell these stories and he does whatever is best for the movie you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so that's uh, it's it's really good definitely seek it out and watch it Good. Yeah, it's surprisingly worthwhile to to watch this uh, cautionary tale of what happens when kids get involved with dope. Yeah. Um, 
Which brings us to the first film of Richard Marquand, uh, the director of Return of the Jedi, um, the original punching bag of the Star Wars uh, films before the prequels came out. People love to rag on aspects of Return of the Jedi, unfairly, I might add. But his first film was a film called The Legacy, uh, with, of all people, Sam Elliott as one of the leads. Uh, and uh, this one is definitely a bit different. Uh, Mike, why don't you give everybody an idea of what this 1978 gem is all about? Well, uh, Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott are two people. I don't know if they even specify what the work is that they do. I think there's other artists. Interior design. I think interior they're, I think they're design, hired for interior design. design. Yeah. So someone gives them a $50,000 retainer to go to the UK to do something, which they don't know what. They, they literally do not know what it is they're supposed to do. So they decide to go early and, and make it sort of a, a nice vacation. And they get into a motorcycle accident and get picked up by a, a nice rich guy and his Rolls Royce who takes them to his castle and, uh, you know, lets them rest while their bike is being repaired. And all these other random people start, you know, showing up, apparently invited to this castle. And then people start dying. And they seem to be dying in a rather supernatural way. And it, it becomes clear that this was no accident that that Catherine Ross and and Sam Elliott were were uh, brought to this castle, and uh, maybe they're involved in a way that they're not even aware of yet. Yeah, that's that's a good synopsis of of this. Your synopsis makes a little more sense than various aspects of the movie <laughs> itself. I will say, I, I get uh, the impression that you didn't like this movie. There, there's, there are some narrative hiccups uh, with this movie. I was not a big fan. This, uh, the most uh, similar sort of experience I can relate is I got excited months and months ago. They finally released, and they made a big deal of it being released, that the version of Dracula done by the guy who later did uh, Dark Shadows, starring Jack Palance, or Palance, depending, of all people, as Dracula. And said, but this is the guy who did Dark Shadows. I was like, oh my gosh, wow. The My reaction to The Legacy is similar, where I, I watched The Legacy and said, huh, well then, this didn't go quite the way it could have. This is a really disjointed movie. I mean, it's supposed to be a horror movie. The motives are never clearly communicated it plays like a movie that they were sort of writing while they were shooting like it just it it's a jumble and it doesn't ever come together and I, I think that the best example of it not coming together is when they're trying to escape the estate when they hijack the Rolls Royce and they find out that like all roads lead back to this you know this castle this man or whatever it is um the music that's playing is so ridiculously inappropriate for a tense scene where people are trying to escape this black magic castle, you know, and get away with their lives. It's it's like this zippy 1970s chase. Like this very much feels like 
a movie where, you know, hey, it's your first time, kid. Just see what you can do with this. We've had this script laying around. See what you can do with it. And ugh, I didn't like it at all. Yeah, I, I definitely liked it more than you did. I, I, I thought it was pretty good, actually, because, I don't know, it, it seemed like it was doing that thing that horror movies try to do, you know, to be, be spooky and, and have like sort of like a haunted house, witchcraft, whatever. And usually whenever they start that, I, I just completely check out because usually it, it becomes about sort of like the suspense of what is going to happen. And here I, I really felt that it was more interactive, I guess, as a viewer where, you know, you were trying to figure out what was happening what was the cause of this but it wasn't just like i'm walking down a corridor what's gonna jump out at me now it's more like something happens and now we need to figure out why that thing happened you know and and it it was almost more of a drama than it was you know straight up horror just with like these weird supernatural elements and and i i think that that all worked pretty well you know i thought it was pretty well constructed and um you're right about some of the the tonal issues being weird but i i wonder how much of that was just playing on you know expectations like when when the movie starts you know i'm like okay you know the 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 box art has like a cat with two different colored eyes and a weird old hand with a ring on it and it's like the legacy and then the movie starts up and there's this like strange love song that that reminds me of like the theme from Octopussy and <laughs> it's got like you know yeah. the, like 70s romance style font as like Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott are like riding their motorcycle through the you know English countryside or whatever you know and and it's just like uh okay um wait a minute I thought this was a horror movie no and then it kind of it, it kind of got into you know the horror stuff gradually, and you know I I think that it worked. I mean one of the things which which really struck me about it, you know, and I guess this is just a reaction to you know what we see today is I'm like, these people are all like adults, you know. Most horror movies you see today are it's like all teenagers or college kids. Mm. It's like an adult movie, but you know horror, you know. You know, I, I, I'm going to say I, I feel the need to to say that British horror, I guess, just doesn't work for me typically because I'll I'll cite another movie you and I watched on another show we've done, uh, Legend of Hell House, yes. um, which I think is more successful than this one, but still had some issues that it just wasn't successful i mean like the ending of this is ridiculously upbeat for everything that has just happened okay i i don't know if we want to risk spoiler territory here like to, to me it, it it was was it ridiculously upbeat or was it just yes. like this is so freaking weird like like to me the ending of it reminded me of the ending of rosemary's baby i have never seen rosemary's baby that's freaking weirder than anything in the legacy i, I have, have to tell you. i i have i've been read the riot act for this especially since i'm a horror fan yeah like rosemary's baby is a legit scary movie and it's yeah. terrifying because it tr everything in that movie is treated so matter-of-factly 
it's like it's all, I mean maybe I just think of this because Cassavetes is in it but it's like watching a Cassavetes movie but with the devil you know yeah no I I maybe before the year is out I will finally rent and watch Rosemary's Baby you should so you I don't should have watched it for October I should have I should have but it's I, never I feel too like late. I feel no that's true it's never too late to watch Rosemary's Baby yeah well, I you know I I don't know I mean you have Roger Daltrey in this which is you know obviously stunt casting um, to begin with you know and of course they cast him as a rock star you know he is the music business in Europe but I do want to you know have a specific shout out maybe the reason I'm ha- I had trouble plugging into it is because Blofeld was in it now not cool oh. Blofeld Donald Pleasance <laughs> but Charles Gray Blofeld from Diamonds are forever, and I'm sorry, I cannot see him on screen and not say, "Oh wow, it's Blofeld." And there's a white cat in this too. There's Come a on, lot of white cats in this. You know, there's cats no, there's all a, over this place. There's, there's only, only one, one white, white one. All right, there's only one white cat. That's the whole catch. She she, she made her way around for sure. Yeah, she did. She yeah. did. Because who is the white cat? Ooh, now you have to watch the legacy to find out. Yeah. Yes. But it's what, pretty obvious, though. One of the interesting things about it, though, is that it was shot by Alan Hume. Who, well, he was he was one of two one cinematographers of two. on this. Yeah, I'm wondering if someone got fired or something. But I'm thinking somebody did. And I'm thinking it probably wasn't Alan Hume, since Alan Hume would go on to work with <laughs> Richard Marquand uh, for most of Marquand's career, including yeah. Return of the Jedi. That's true. And what's interesting is if continuing the Bond connection... Hume shot For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and View to a Kill, mm-hmm. and and Return of the Jedi. And what's interesting is in this, as well as in Return of the Jedi, I do not like the way he lights sets that are supposed to be outdoors. Okay. All right. And, and it's something that comes through also in For Your Eyes Only at the end when they switch to an indoor set that's supposed to be outdoors for the big showdown at the end. In the beginning of this, in specific, like I could, if you were to say, okay, there were two directors of photography, try to pick out what is specifically Hume, I could sit down with you and I could say, I can guarantee you that's Hume, and I can guarantee you that's Hume, especially certain um, gauzy shots of Catherine Ross, where the visual aesthetic is very evocative of of what we see later with Leia in the uh, in the Ewok village. Yeah. Um, right down to her hair and her mannerisms. Mm -hmm. So I found that interesting. Yeah. should also be noted that this movie was edited by Ann Coates, who is a legend in the, in the industry. She edited Lawrence of Arabia, you know, and and not to mention, you know, out of sight and uh, Aaron Brockovich, Lawrence of Arabia and Out of Sight are both on the uh, Editors Guild's lists of the, the best edited films of all time. And she cut those movies like 30 years apart, which is insane. And, you know, she's she's had a, a, a very, very long and illustrious career. And and if anybody is wondering, in case they're not film buffs, at, but they've seen movies through the years, she also has editing credits on Masters of the Universe, the Gollum and Globus production, and also, what about Bob, the uh, Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus romp that is is quite funny, I yeah. will say. And and Fifty Shades of Grey. 
which is why I was like, oh my God, (laughs) because like, (laughs) I I was like, I'm like, now I need to see this movie, you know, and I watched it. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm not willing to go that far for it, but she, I mean, you know, you know, the next one's directed by the guy to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, really? Yeah. That. Is, not, now you, well, now wait a minute. We co- we covered one of his movies before. That's no guarantee of success. <laughs> There'll be a know. lot of color saturations. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. uh, so okay. So we're split vote then on the legacy. Do you think people should run out and see it and and rent it? Do you think it'll give them a good thrill? I think so. I think if you if you like movies like you know rosemary's baby or legend of hell house or you know those types of things i think this is very much in that vein that sort of like british adult you know uh mystical horror i think it works pretty well yeah well i'm gonna put a call out to our audience i know that we're new but if you're listening and if anybody out there decides to rent uh these any of these three films and watch them or all three of them uh, you can go over to thenerdparty.com slash contact and look for our show, Great Shot Kid. Drop us a line. Let us know what you thought. Is Mike right about the legacy or am I right about the legacy? I think I'm right about the legacy. I'd be very itch- I would love to have a little straw poll here, see what people thought. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But when you do go over to thenerdparty.com, you can also check out the other shows that we have here on the network. We have a whole lot of things for you to look through. We have Nerd Nuptial. We have Filibuster. We have Aggressive Negotiations, which is a more esoteric, Star Wars-focused podcast. And we also have SETI Alpha 3, which is a Star Trek-focused podcast. So go on over to nerdparty.com, drop us a line, check out the other shows, let us know what you think. And if people want to reach out to you, Mike, and let you know what they think, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And if you want to find me over on Twitter, you can find me at Kessel Junkie. And uh, yeah, I'll get back to you eventually. So, But you know what people should definitely do, uh, so long as they're listening to Great Shot Kid, Mike? What's that? They should go on over and they should check out LootCrate.com slash NerdParty. And you can go and you can sign up for Loot Crate, which is a really neat service. It sends you a box of geek goodies once a month. It's a subscription. A subscription service cancel it at any time uh, or you know subscribe forever and if you enter the code nerd party at checkout you're going to get a box of goodies limited edition hats mugs t-shirts collectibles you name it they have a different theme every month so go on over to lootcrate.com slash nerd party and go ahead and enter the code nerd party and get your discount well mike it's been fun looking through these films tune in next time when we're going to be bringing you a commentary on the star wars rebels the antilles extraction written by gary witta 